Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, on this uh, first Sunday in January, first of all, we want to lift up a brother uh, who's pastoring a local church, a sister church here in this community, uh, Greg Fields and Tracy. Lord, I want to pray for Greg this morning as he is beginning to preach in Revelation. I want to pray for, um, first of all, that the preaching and the study has just... Uh, disassembled him, wrecked him, blown him away, rebuilt him, that has fueled his conversation with Tracy, with the kids, uh, with his friends, with those he's walking with, that it just gushes over into his pastoral roles, and uh, Lord, that it just spills over and pours over onto a people as he preaches. Lord, I pray that the sweet work of revelation, of building identity as a people, of putting on display the trinity of... Um, pointing toward uh, the finish line. Lord, I hope that all those things are accomplished in these next few weeks and months, however long it takes them to work through that book. Lord, I pray that that people will enjoy you. Lord, I pray that we will be true teammates, never having a spirit of competition. We cheer for them, Lord, for your glory. pray that that little building won't contain the people that you draw to that table who sit at your feet week by week. Underneath some of the strongest teaching and preaching in this community. Lord, I beg that you'll be glorified in that, in that body and in that people. Lord, this morning as this people gather for the first time this year, Lord, I pray that this sermon and this message we're about to engage will just be kind of an inaugural christening on what we'll be about this year, what we'll be really intentional about, what we'll be engaging, burdened about. Lord, I pray for your guidance and your... Um, words to be exposed Lord I pray that you'll guard me from giving opinion Lord I pray that this people will see that we uh, we hear from the living God this morning we turn this time over to you for your glory in Christ's name we pray amen <clears throat> turn to Romans chapter 8 give you just as you're turning there I'll let you know that we'll be coming back to John 14 Sunday after next. This sermon this morning was supposed to be just a one-shot kind of christening for the year, and it's turned into a two-shot. So it'll be this Sunday and next. And you'll be glad about that because um, I think it's more digestible in two sittings, and uh, we would have been here till one probably had we done it in one sitting. I wanted to because I hate to sit on part two for a whole week, but... I think for your sake and maybe for my sake of exposing it, the Lord just, Scott and I talked beforehand, and Scott said, why don't you just cut it in two? Thank you, Scott. Good insight. <laughs> Didn't think of that. So uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, we're going to look, really, I want you to kind of keep your finger in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look in Galatians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 7 and 8, primarily chapter 8. So I'm just giving you a bird's eye view, kind of a map of where we're going this morning. We're going to begin and come back to frequently. I'm exposing a passage in Romans chapter 8. But we're going to use Galatians chapter 5, Romans chapter 7 um, to help us expose that. So let me ask you all to do something too. If you're sitting on the, on the outside and you've got some room on the inside, if you can scoot inward because we've got some folks that coming in trying to find some seats and maybe if they can find some areas on the outside, that will open up some possibilities for them. Thanks for doing that. All right, cool. 
these last two Sundays of 2008, we spent on what I really feel like may be two of the most important messages that I've ever had the privilege of preaching on the godness of Jesus. And they have been two really heavy, important, significant sermons for me, and I hope for this people. And it's appropriate that we're engaging what we're going to engage this Sunday, given what we've engaged the last two weeks. See, the last two weeks, we've feasted on the godness of Jesus, really in this heart of worship and joying. And I've coached you, made you realize before I even began those sermons that we were coming not as practitioners, but as worshipers. We're not coming trying to build a to-do list. We're coming, building, hopefully trying to build an identity of a B-list. This is what we are. We're worshipers enjoying Christ in spirit and in truth. So in light of these last two Sundays, it's pretty cool the where, where we're going this morning and the next Sunday, and it's pretty appropriate that we go there before we go here. That we go to get the fuel for an ethic. That we go get the, the worship that gives us the means and the fuel and the motive to go be the people of God and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's especially appropriate. If you separate the godness of Jesus or sermons like that, if you separate them from the ethic of response, then this faith that you say you have in this Jesus has no venom. It has no teeth, no hair, no eyes, no tennis shoes. It has no purchase. Then on the other hand, if all we do is engage in ethic and never engage this worship and wonder, then we can find ourselves very religious and completely faithless. We can find ourselves about good things, but with the wrong motive making them bad things because anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. So our teeth and hair and mouth and eyes and tennis shoes ethic may have no faith, potentially, if we separate the two. So it's appropriate that they go together. So if, you, if this is your first Sunday, you're thinking, okay, this is the identity that these people are. I want to get to know these people. I urge you to go back and listen to the last two Sundays because that's who we are also. It's like a sandwich. They go together. John 14 is an appropriate place. I'm not going to take you there. I'm just going to share a few passages with you. This is why... I think it's an appropriate way for us to begin this year. The last two years have kind of been the year of, years of shepherding for Crosspoint. In the last two years, we've gained eye contact with the shepherds. Mostly men, but not exclusively. But mostly men who are leading their families in the faith, trying to equip them to do so. But in many cases, spiritually single mothers who are serve, serving as a shepherd are, are just plain single mothers who are serving as shepherds. The last two years have been the years of the shepherd where we've got eye contact. This year... I believe, is the year of obedience. The year of obedience. And the reason why, I'm just not pulling this out of air. I've been eating John 14, preparing to preach this in the coming weeks and months. And here are just a few snippets from John 14. We've been getting to know this Jesus in the last 13 chapters. And in John 14, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Huh. He says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him he says if anyone these are all different verses in the same chapter if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him love is obedience 
So it's appropriate for us to engage a year of real intentionality and understanding what it means to obey our God. This passage in Romans chapter 8 will be kind of an inaugural christening for the year of obedience. So let's start there. Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and we're going to camp on and unpack verse 13 here in these next two Sundays. Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. And in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're going to unpack this. I'm going to give you some contextual help to help you appreciate what's being said here. But first of all, I want you to know that Paul wrote this to a church in Rome. God's words through Paul to a church in Rome. I want you to appreciate and realize the gravity that this was written to a church. I'm going to read the words again and appreciate that this is written to a church. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The gravity of that being written to a church is so critical. I want you to appreciate that the church at Rome, that their kids had, they had little laminated cards with their kids' names on them. Some of the parents had their kids' names on the walls where it had a little list there if they were allergic to peanuts. These words were written to people who likely came and engaged the word possibly week by week. It was written to a church. It sounds almost like it should be written in a revival. Like it ought to be shared with a bunch of lost people. That if if you're about the deeds of the flesh, you're going to die lost people. But if you're saved like the rest of us, you'll be mortifying the sins of the flesh. And you'll live. But realize this was written to a church. This makes me swallow hard to realize in this context that we may have a mixture of the same, a mixture of some who will live by the flesh and thereby die. 
But yet some who will put to death the deeds of the flesh in thereby live. Right here in this people. Some, really, some of each who have the little cards laminated with their kids' names on them. Who maybe have a membership card in Rhonda's office in there. These words are for the professing found. That's why these words just they may make me swallow hard as one of your shepherds. As being on the receiving end of this message too. It's a statement so critical that it's the difference between eternal life and eternal death. The realization of who it's written to should make you swallow and gulp. Okay. Let's engage it seriously. First of all, I want you to know that it's not a conditional statement. It sounds like a conditional statement. I'm going to read it again. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It sounds like an if-then statement. If you do this, then you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. It sounds like an if-then statement, but it's not a conditional statement. The reason we know it's not a conditional statement is because in this very same book, a few chapters earlier, Paul writes to the church at Rome. He says, For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Later in chapter 6, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we know it's a free gift. It's not something that you can earn with being a good boy. And it's not something you can lose by being a bad boy. Thank goodness. It's a free gift. This is not a conditional statement. Rather, what this is, this is a statement of association and certainty. It's association of a certainty and, and, and a statement of association and certainty in this way. The dying live according to the flesh. That's just what they do. And the living, on the other hand, put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's just what living people do. It doesn't make you living. It's just what living people are about. The living are putting to death the misdeeds or the deeds of the flesh by the work of the Spirit in their lives. That's the meaning of this passage. We're going to unpack it more, but I want you to get that bird's eye view and understand. Don't even go to thinking that you can earn this salvation that we've been given as a free gift. There is a motive behind these, these, this issue of killing, killing death, though, or killing sin. I want to show you the motive. Look back in verse 12. I read the whole passage together because I want to go back and pick up some things, but look in verse 12. We've just read in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Back in the verse in front of it says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. He's describing our responsibility to put to death the deeds of the flesh because we are debtors. We're not paying someone for something because, remember, it's a free gift. We are simply responding to a gift that's been given to us. We are owing the living God some things that are appropriate, and that's to mortify the sins of the flesh. And we owe Him this because, look back in verse 1, we owe Him this because there's there now no for. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a good reason to be a debtor. Because there's no more condemnation for you, sinner. That's a good reason to be a debtor. Be a debtor also because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. That's a good reason to be a debtor. 
Verse 3, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God did something that the law couldn't do. So we're debtors responding to that. He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. Another reason to be a debtor. And then lastly, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Get the motive right. Because if you miss the motive, then it's not worship. If we're not responding to the work of the cross as debtors, and we're thinking we're going to be earners, that's the difference between death and life. That's the difference between worship and sin. It's worship and it's appropriate to respond to these incredible gifts that the God has given us, these free gifts as debtors. And what do debtors do? How do, we give him, how do we give him an appropriate due as a debtor? We mortify the sins of the flesh. Now, if we have Christ and the Spirit dwells in us, then we are debtors to live in a way that involves the daily mortification of sin. To live in a way, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel that we bear. What I want to do this week, I've broken this up into two pieces. What I want to do this week is look at what's true of the dying. Next week, I want to look at what's true of the living. This will be helpful because I think you may see some of yourself in the dying. You may, with me, swallow hard and go, Oh, man, but by grace am I saved. Oh, man, thank you for grace and mercy. Let's look at it first. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's the first thing, that those who are dying live according to the flesh. I want to look at some other passages to help understand that. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Hopefully you got, got your finger in it and you're ready. I want to understand this living according to the flesh. And I want you to understand this so you with me can quake. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 is the first place I want to look. It says, but I say... Walk by the Spirit, Galatians, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, so first of all, we know that those who are dying live according to the flesh, and then that flesh has desires. It's right there in black and white. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Look down at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the flesh doesn't just have desires, but the flesh also has passions. And then we can live according to those passions and desires. And what that means and what that looks like is to live according to those things. They prompt us, those passions and desires that, believe me, every single one of us has. You've got them. If you're made of the same stuff I am, you've got passions and desires. And we can live by those passions and desires. They prompt us. They drive us. They can steer us. They can guide us. And ultimately, if they do all those things, they guide us and steer us to our own ruin. Eternal death. Do you appreciate the gravity that we all have the goods for eternal death? As we sit here in a church, maybe professing Christ for years, realize that this could very easily be us. 
You may be here by appointment to hear this for the first time, having grown up in the church, having professed that you and God are square through some decision that you've made at some point. You may swallow hard today and go, you know what? I'm driven by my passions and desires. They prompt me. They prompt all of us. But I follow through with that prompting, with a desire, with a drive, with, that, that these things steer me. These things guide who I am, how I make decisions. What I'm going to do over the course of the week, these passions and desires do those things. And you know what? As I'm realizing it, I'm hearing it for the first time, I'm living by those things. And what does it mean when you live by those things? It means that you live and you really are dead. Here's what it looks like for me. (laughs) I told Christy that this sermon, as I prepared to preach it, that I was going to share some personal things. I like doing that. I don't like doing it, but I need to do it because it encourages people. Because first of all, it makes you realize that none of the elders are perfect. None of us have arrived. Hopefully, it puts you in the place where you realize you haven't arrived either. But it also may give you hope. Here's what this looks like for me. These passions and desires that are always at work in my flesh. Here's what it looks like for me if left to my own device. I'm prone to eat. I am, man. I'm prone to eat when I'm happy, I eat. I'm prone to eat when I'm sad, I eat. When I'm worried, I want to go get something to eat. When I'm bored, (laughs) let me go get something to eat. When I'm busy, I need nourishment, I need fuel, let me go get something to eat. For whatever reason, my every emotion is tied to a food product. It's not real specific. It's just any food product. It is an ever-present pressure for this dude right here. It's my DNA of propensities, tendencies. That's, That's how I'm wired. I know that's not true for everybody, but this is me. I want you to see what this looks like, this ever-present desire and passion that's part of my flesh. It's always there. Living according to this passion and desire for Ben McGraw means that it's on in the kitchen. On, like a big dog. It's on with the sweets. I'm like a sweet machine. I will eat sweets until I'm sick. I have no internal mechanism that says, Stop! Enough, big man! I don't have that. So me and sweets, man, it's on. And in the wake of the holidays, as I engage this picture of these passions and desires of the flesh, this is an ever-present reality for me. It's a nagging reality of my desires and passions that are especially fresh and especially convicting on the wake of the holidays. Birthday for me, then holiday. That's where it starts, early December. December is like wicked chow month. So first of all, we know that the flesh, what's characteristic of the flesh, is it has passions and desires. You got them too. It may not be for sweets and food, but you got your version. Look back at Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Let's learn some more about the flesh. It says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us something more about the flesh that it actually lusts against the Spirit. It's not um, like an empty vessel that just sits idle. It's like poison. And it's going after the thing that indwells me, the seal of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling God inside of me and inside of you. Your passions, your lusts, your desires, they wage war with the Satan. Or excuse me, with our spirit within. They wage war. God the Spirit who indwells the believer and guides him and counsels him has something that's against him all the time. And that thing that's against him is the desires and lusts of the flesh. So my passion and desire for food, albeit funny, doesn't work with the Holy Spirit. It works against the Holy Spirit. Can I totally mow in the kitchen and get my chow on and expect to have a sweet time with the Lord? I can't do it. I can't do it. It's funny. It's something to laugh about. Three weeks of stuff in my face over the Christmas and Thanksgiving and birthday sort of holidays. Can I expect that this will not impact my relationship with this indwelling Holy Spirit? It has an impact. These passions and desires that are within me wage war with this Spirit within me. It seems that I can actually stifle and quench this indwelling Holy Spirit and the wonderful work of this indwelling guide by drowning him in peanuts or homemade trail mix. That's what somebody, uh, homemade granola. Somebody gave us some this, this Christmas. And it was like it had crack cocaine in it or something. <laughs> I couldn't stop. In fact, when I finished it, we made more. And I know it's funny, man. I, I want us to be able to kind of laugh about it. But, you know, while I'm laughing about it, there's something deep down inside me that's hurting because it impacts my relationship with the living God. I can't do that. And then expect to go enjoy and be drunk with the Spirit. When I'm drunk on homemade granola, this is a very real war within me. Others understand this war and pointed to it. James chapter 4, verse 1. Don't turn there, just listen. James, the brother of Jesus, said, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 1 Peter chapter 2, 11, another dude, Peter, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that's what we are in this world, just visitors, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul albeit respectable to have a bunch of granola somehow it's acceptable well I may not realize it but I'm actually on the field of battle it may seem the word I, the word, I can't find the word it may seem like it has no venom. It may seem like it has no impact on the believer, but it has a terrible impact on the believer. This flesh, these desires, these things, these passions that are within us are a bloodthirsty warrior. And they fight whether, we're on the, whether we realize we're in the battle or not. You can't be uninvolved in this fight. If you have this same stuff that I have, then you're in the fight. In the Marine Corps, we had this term for the guys that were in, like, supply. 
guys that passed out like canteens and stuff, that they're in the rear with the gear. I was an infantry guy who's out on the front end, you know, hooking and jabbing, hitting and rolling, locating, close with, destroy the enemy by fire maneuver. The rest of the guys were in the rear with the gear. You can't be in the rear with the gear with this issue. You're on the field of battle, but the reality is you may not realize it. You may be sitting there in your swimsuit, scratching your belly, eating some popcorn. Meanwhile, the flesh is waging war against us whether we realize it or not. And we can sit there and scratch. Here's a guy that had an awareness of it. Turn back to Romans chapter 7. Here's a guy that had a concept of this war that's waging and raging all the time. Romans chapter 7. Listen to Paul. Paul says, verse 15, says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul may be connected to his thorn in the flesh there. We don't know if that was a physical ailment or if it was a sin tendency, a besetting sin. We don't know what that was. But I can understand sort of what this feels like. I do the very thing I hate as I swallow another handful of homemade granola. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Remember, they have passions and desires. And there's waging war all the time. Nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good thing I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Do you know why evil lies close at hand? Because we're wearing it. Unless you're like RoboCop with like some sort of metal, synthetic stuff. You're made of the same stuff I am. The same temptations that our Lord was exposed to and did not fail, all of us share. That's why evil lies close at hand. we're, We're wearing it. Paul says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul says evil lies close at hand and the misdeeds of the body are just under the surface all the time. One thing I figured out in areas of my life having to do with sins, besetting sins or things that I failed with over the course of my lifetime, I will never be able to put a check in that block and move on to a new issue because it always sits just under the surface. Because we're wearing it. Evil lies close at hand. So what Paul is saying is that there's a war raging and waging within us. We each have propensities. We each have weaknesses. We each have tendencies, inclinations, predispositions. We each have hungers and appetites. And evil lies close at hand. These are 
in us and we can live according to them. We can let those things that are in every single one of us drive us and never engage them, never wage war with them. We can live quite satisfied and resigned to them as they ravage us to death. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. I thought it'd be appropriate for me to escort you into my heartbreak. I was public about some of my, or at least one of my tendencies. It's embarrassing to share something like that about a propensity in me, tendency in me that I often succumb to. But I want you to see, hopefully, I want you to take some ownership of this issue. So I'm going to go to one vice list is what it's called. There are a bunch of vice lists in our New Testament. Paul was good at throwing these vice lists out. James did it too. Peter did it. But here's one in Galatians where Paul shares a vice list. Here's what the desires and passions of our flesh look like when we give it the chance. Here's what it looks like when we sit on the field of battle in our, in our PJs or our swimsuit eating popcorn. Here's what they give way to. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I thought I would just take a moment and just kind of unpack what these are. Just like one sentence for each of these things. Let's look at them. The first three have to do with sex. The next couple have to do with religion. The next eight have to do with society. And the last two have to do with drink. Let's deal with the first two. First three. Immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Immorality. This is the vice list. Remember, this is what happens when you sit on the field of battle in your PJs eating popcorn. The first one is immorality. The word for this in the original language points back to fornication. This is sex between the unmarried. The next is impurity. This is evil vice. This is like wicked vice, like pornography and things. This repeated sin having to do with sexual stuff. Lust. The next one is sensuality. Sensuality is indecency. In dress and in action. Next one is having to do with religion is idolatry, the worship of other gods. If you think, no, man, you know, I don't have any Buddha statues in my house. No threat there. I guarantee there's a threat there. Romans chapter 1 tells us, don't need to look there. I'll just share with you briefly. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the worship of another god can be actually the worship of yourself. What happened with these guys that rejected the truth in Romans chapter 1, is they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You can make a God of a critter. And oftentimes that God that we put in the place, or that critter that we put in the place of God is ourselves. I'm going to do it my way, not God's. That's idolatry. The worship of other gods other than the true God. Sorcery is the next one. This is tampering with the powers of evil. Widgie boards or whatever, I don't know what they're called. I don't, I'm glad I don't know what they're called, but I bet y'all know what I'm talking about. 
Here's the next ones have to do with society. Here's the first one. Enmity. Enmity is hostility between individuals based on political, racial, or religious grounds. I've seen this from professing believers just right in our own community. I've seen hostility between churches. Strife, quarrelsomeness. What this is, is this is the guy or the lady who's the duty critic. Whatever board, whatever committee, whatever organization you're on, you're the one that's going to shoot holes and shoot the wheels off every idea. That's called quarrelsomeness. The next one is jealousy. The original language, the word for jealous is zealous. And zeal is not a bad thing. But jealousy in this case is self-zeal. It's selfish zeal. And what this looks like is when you and two you and another person are competing for a position and that person is promoted and not you. If you're burning with something and you make you just want to rip somebody's head off, that's probably selfish zeal. Fits of anger. This is another one that's near and dear for me. I grew up in a home, a Christian home, one given to fits of anger. My dad is a different man now. My brothers are different, but it lies just under the surface for us. It's something that was fostered as kids, man. It was almost like a badge of honor to see who could get the maddest. Who could spit? Who could turn the reddest? Who could hurt the other person? That's what I grew up in. Because I grew up in it doesn't make it any less a sin. Right here, it's right in the middle of a vice list. Is anyone else in here explosive? Anybody other than me? Am I the only one? Even the pagans know that this is wicked. Aristotle described this condition. He said, he described this one that has, is given to fits of anger, has one who does seem to hear the voice of reason, but hears it wrongly. Like those impetuous, which means reckless and impulsive servants, who rush off before hearing all that's said, and then do not carry out their orders properly. Or, I like this better. Like dogs which start barking before waiting to see if one is a friend or not. Can you envision the little chihuahua? It's just me. Hush. You know the person I'm talking about? Christy's seen it in me for 13 years. She says something to me, and man, I could be real quick to rip her head off when she wasn't even. She's a friend. I had no reason to bark. Given to fits of anger. The next one's rivalries. This is a mercenary spirit, someone with selfish ambition. This person says me a lot, and I. I've got plans. This is about me. The next one is dissensions. Dissensions is presenting divisive teachings. This actually happened in the Galatian church where a group of people came in, they were called Judaizers, and they taught that in order to be saved that you also had to be circumcised. And Paul said, you know what? I hope when they do that, the knife slips. I hope they emasculate themselves. That's how aggressive he was. I didn't make that up. That's what he said. That's wicked, dissensions. The next one is divisions. Fostering or forming cliques or separations. Now it's ironic that the people that can be the most involved and the most busy about forming cliques are the ones that are on the margins. 
Because the marginalized or the perceived marginalized can pull other people in the margins and say, man, look at that click over there. All the while, the people that are in the supposed click are going, huh? What click? Come hang out with us. But somebody's so easily damaged, so easily hurt that they live on the margins and they draw people out. That's divisive. The next one is envy, a grudging spirit that can't bear seeing someone else succeed. Anybody? Have I hit home for anybody? Is it just me given to fits of anger and given to homemade granola? Socrates said the envious are pained by their friends' successes. I've seen that in churches where you hear about another church where somebody's failed, some moral failure, and deep down inside somebody's going, maybe we'll get some of their members. How wicked, man. How wicked. The next two have to do with drink. I didn't prepare a lot of thoughts in advance on this, so I'm not going to shoot from the hip because I've dealt with this a lot. I've had lots of conversation with folks about where I stand on alcohol, and the fact that I haven't taken a strong stance on thou shalt not drink does not mean that I approve of drunkenness because it's here in the vice list. There's a difference between having one beer with your meal and getting drunk. And I will not raise the bar above our biblical standard. It's high enough. But the bar is, drunkenness is vice. As gluttony is vice, so is excessive drink. It weakens the judgment and it leads to all manner of wickedness. I will never land on the place just because I haven't taken a hard stance on thou shalt not drink, which is not a biblical standard. That does not mean that we're the drinking church, man. Go over to Crossbow and get drunk with those cats. Drunkenness is vice and it is wicked. And those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the next one is so connected to it, it's called orgies. That's not an orgy like many of you might think of it. This is revelry. This is wild partying, and it's often associated with drunkenness. And what does Paul say here? He says, those who practice such things and the like will not inherit the kingdom of God. Christy just finished a book. Or she's still working on it, I think. Scott read this recently. I think Steve Mayo gave it to him. It's called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. We'll see if we can get some copies for anybody that can't afford it. But you can probably get on Amazon and get it for 10, 15 bucks. Kind of taking an interesting uh, direction on this issue of sin. And he deals with some of those sins that are just so easily dismissed, even among the faith. Because we call them respectable somehow. We repackage them. And here's some of the chapter, chapters that he deals with. He deals with ungodliness, anxiety, frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness. Pride, selfishness, lack of self-control. He, he deals with eating and drinking, temper, and personal finances under the heading of lack of self-control. Impatience and irritability, anger, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, sins of the tongue, and worldliness. I hadn't read the book yet. I aim to. But I suspect that some of the things that he deals with is how good we are at repackaging our sin. Because we repackage it and condition it by saying things like, ah, that's just how I'm wired. Well, 
It's okay if I'm giving a fits of rage because I'm kind of Irish, laddie. I'm just a pro, you know, I overeat because I grew up in a home where everybody else overate. I grew up in a home of glutton, so it's okay if I'm a glutton. I'm just a product of my, my environment. I'm a product of my angry environment. It's just how I'm wired, and we can make sins respectable and sort of reduce them and somehow put them on different level with lust or pornography or drunkenness. And we can find ourselves just like the Pharisee who prayed beside the tax collector saying, I sure am glad I'm not like that joker. God, I'm doing you a favor being on your team because I'm not like the tax collector over there. And the reality is every single one of us has a propensity. Every single one of us hopefully found something that's familiar here where you with me are swallowing Hard, because living according to these things means death. It means eternal agony, eternal pain, and eternal suffering. Paul says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. One of the things that was intimidating for me in preparing to preach this sermon today, and now next week also, and I'm so proud of Christ in you, Scott. Young preacher for launching off into preaching on mortification of sin. Because it's not popular. I know what your faces look like when I'm preaching on something. It's like, oh man, this is really exciting. I want to know all about this for a long time. Then when I'm preaching on this, because you're kind of like, oh, dang, when's this going to be over, man? Maybe I'm going to be sick next week. (laughs) Or something in you might be thinking, man... I knew the other shoe was going to drop on this church. I thought all they talked about was Jesus, and I like Jesus. But they're going to talk about obedience and dealing with sin too? Hmm. I like Jesus, but I'm not okay with all this sin stuff. You need to know it's, it's, on, it's on our Lord's radar too. Because he says, loving is obeying. You can't say, I'm okay with Jesus, but I'm not okay with talk like this. Fellow debtors is what we are. Fellow debtors, next week we'll look at the work that we are to be about in murdering, assassinating, mortifying, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Before I do that, I want to read one passage for you. One that I think that we can just hold especially close to and just, or we can cling to especially hard. It's where I wanted to begin this morning. It's where I want to end. Is that the eternal life is a free gift. We have such an incredibly graceful God. It's a free gift and he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Grace is sweet. What this Sunday and next Sunday and hopefully this year of obedience will do for us, hopefully it will make us a bunch of low, needy, dependent. Grace clinging people who are about the difficult waging war work of mortifying sin. We'll go there next week. Let me pray. Lord, I pray I pray that we will be this people that recognize our position as debtors, not earners, 
but as debtors responding to an incredible gift that's been given to us. Lord, I pray that everything in us enjoys that the work has been finished, that the sinless life has been lived, and that that final sacrifice once and for all was made on that cross, and that that tomb is especially vacant, and that that work is the work that we come under. Lord, I'm thankful that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are bathed in that blood of that finished work. And Lord, I pray that in response to that, that this church can live in a manner worthy of the gospel that has saved us. Lord, I pray that in response to that, that we will be about the difficult work of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes to our own sinfulness, that you will call to mind the wickedness in us, those things that sit right under the surface that explode at any moment. And Lord, that in doing that, as we... Our, as our attentions are called to that, that we will be humbled, that we will grow downward in humility, and that as we do that, we'll look upward and worship and wonder and see just how low grace had to reach. Lord, I pray that you'll work this in us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.